Amen. I, I, I'm thinking, I don't know what the atmosphere is like uh, where you are viewing this right now, uh, but uh, and, and I sense even an atmosphere here with just a few of us. Uh, hopefully the Lord is speaking to you already. I really like when our worship songs are especially powerful uh, because it speaks to me and then also uh, takes the pressure off of the sermon. I'm telling you, if, if your heart is anywhere near being right with the Lord, even just getting up and taking part in those two songs was worth it, uh, worth tuning in today. Um, but what we want to do is, if you would, join me in Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to invite you to join me. I hope you have your Bible. Um, I prayed this morning that the Lord would wake us up, and I hope He has woken many of you up in time to... Uh, have a prayer time and ask the Lord to prepare your hearts. Uh, maybe you found those songs convicting or just deepening of your faith, challenging to your faith, or very worshipful. Whatever it may be, uh, I trust that uh, your heart is now ready to look at the Word of God. Matthew chapter number 9. Uh, guys, before I read this, we're going to look at the first eight verses of Matthew 9, continuing our study in the book of Matthew uh, don't ever lose sight of this. We get to read the Word of God. What we're about to read is the Word of God. Uh, by way of confession, uh, this particular passage this week uh, whipped me uh, most of the week. I've said before that sometimes I feel like the Lord opens a passage, and I, I think, boy, I think I kind of know what that that one the Lord is saying in that particular passage. And in other times, I get a partial feel for that. And I feel like some of it is still closed. Uh, well, the latter is true of this particular passage today. I, I don't know that it's all the way open to me. I wasn't expecting it, to be honest. And if you've read through this before, maybe some of you even now are thinking, oh, I know the trouble you're going to run into, and I know the dilemma that you had this week. And others of you may be like, well, this is kind of a familiar verse, a familiar passage of Scripture, a familiar scene. So what's so difficult about it? Um, well, let's get into it. And even as I was sitting listening to the song, what if the Lord were to give us just heavy doses of Jesus today? Wouldn't that be something? Matthew chapter 9. I want to read in verses 1 uh, through 8. And as we do that, here's what I want us to be refreshed. Of course, last week, I very much appreciate Mike preaching. The week before, we were focused on Easter. So it's been three weeks uh, since we've been in Matthew and, of course, there are four Gospels. Uh, four men wrote about uh, the life of Christ, the good news of the life of Christ. Uh, but particularly, so John is very unique, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke write much about the same things. But after we finished the Sermon on the Mount and got to chapter number 8, so we had six sermons in chapter 8, and I don't know if you guys remember, but it's almost like every week I'm alluding to Mark and Luke as well as Matthew and I'm always fighting the urge to just go read Matthew. Let's go read Mark and Luke. Here's why. Matthew always seems like he's the most condensed. He writes the least about these things, especially now that we're in chapters 8 and 9. Well, here it is again. So these eight verses become 10 verses in Luke and I think 12 or 13 or so verses in the book of Mark. And so Matthew's just not giving us all the details that Mark does. And I want to, what I want to do is kind of as we read through, maybe filter in some of those details. Would you look at verse number 1, Matthew chapter 9? And we'll not read Mark and Luke, but we will bring in some of the 
uh, additional information they provide. Verse 1. And getting into a boat, he, Jesus, crossed over. It's talking about crossing over the Sea of Galilee. Actually, he's crossing back over. Verse 1 again. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. So let me pause right there and give a little bit of background from Mark and, and Luke. If you'll remember, so we have the Sea of Galilee. So you have Judea, Samaria, Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is where the predominant portion of Jesus' ministry has taken place. And he was in the city of Capernaum, not named here. And he, a crowd gathers, and that crowd prompts Jesus to leave, and he goes to another part. So they, they take a voyage, he and his disciples. He calms a storm in the middle of the night. They hit uh, an area where the Gadarenes live. Jesus casts out demons out of two men. Those demons go into 2,000 swine. The swine go over a cliff and drown. The locals ask Jesus, would you please leave? He goes back. So he's back. They're, they're now on the voyage through the night, apparently, heading back to where they had left. And so if you say, well, hold on. The verse says, getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Maybe he went back to Nazareth. That's where he was raised, uh, reared for 30 years. But he's not back in Nazareth. Mark makes it clear he's now back in Capernaum where he had just left. Something else we need to know before we read verse 2. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus, the word got out that he was, quote, at home. And so I don't know. I lean toward at home means that he's in Peter and Andrew's house in Capernaum, and that's kind of his home base when he's in Capernaum. So this is where he's mainly uh, giving out his three years of ministry. So word is out. He's at home. And again, the other Gospels tell us it gets so crowded. So a crowd drove him out of town. He gets back in town, and the crowd starts gathering again. But the crowd now has some other people in it, some scribes and Pharisees from different parts of Galilee, but also down in Judea and Jerusalem are mentioned by Mark and Luke. And they're now in the house. And again, the other Gospels tell us, literally, it is so crowded in the house, there's like no more room. Like, ladies and gentlemen, if you lived in that day, if you lived in that town, you heard Jesus is at home. Hey, he's teaching and preaching. Let's head over there. There's probably going to be some healing going on. You couldn't get in. And you say, oh, no problem. I'll just stand at the back of the door. There is no room at the back of the door. Literally, it is going out the door. You couldn't get in. And so with that scene, look at verse 2. And behold, some people. Mark tells us it was four men. And behold, some people brought to him, literally they're carrying him on a bed, brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Four men bring a paralytic. They want to get him to Jesus. He's lying on a bed. What we do not know is this man paralyzed from the waist down. That's why he can't walk. Or is he a paraplegic? Are his arms even of any use? We don't know. We just know that he's a paralytic. Don't know how long he's been a paralytic, what caused it. The word is actually used for a gradual onset of paralysis that has taken away his movement and he's being carried by four men, presumably his friends. Back to verse 2. The Bible says when Jesus saw their faith, he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, <laughs> here it comes, and you say, I don't really see the big deal. He sees this paralytic being brought to him. In a moment, I'll tell you the great effort that these four men took to get this man to Jesus. Jesus saw their faith. Apparently, he sees the action that is springing from their faith. He says to the paralytic, take heart, my son. 
Your sins are forgiven. What? Take heart, my son, as he's lowered through the roof. There's no room. They find another way. His friends bring this man to Christ, but they can't get in the house. And so they don't let that stop them. Mark says that they go up to the roof, presumably up the outside staircase, make a determination where an area would be over where Jesus is preaching. They start tearing the tiles off the roof. They literally lower the man down to where Jesus is. Hey, guys, I've had to preach amid some distractions before. Like three weeks ago was very distracting. I understand that you couldn't really tell there at home. Praise the Lord. It was extremely distracting here as our website went down. It was It was hard. I've never had to preach while somebody is literally tearing the roof open while I'm trying to preach. So I'm going to assume at some point Jesus just stops preaching. These four guys tear the roof open large enough. They lower this man down. When he's down there, Jesus stops teaching and preaching to them, tells the paralytic because he sees their faith, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now that I've seen it, I can't unsee that phrase. It it presents some problems. Verse 3, and behold, some of the scribes, and we know there were Pharisees there as well, and those are kind of interchangeable in a lot of ways. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, so what's happening here, it's not that they stopped and broke out in conversation, though there was no doubt some noise made in the room when Jesus said, particularly those last four words of verse 2, verse 3, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, inside themselves, and their thought, This man's blaspheming. Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. And some, this man's blaspheming. Verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he knows their thoughts. They don't have to say it out loud. He knows their thoughts. Said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Hey, hey, hey. Why are you thinking evil? That thought you just had is an evil thought. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? And then he presents a question. For which is easier? Notice the text. I'm going to be very subtle here. Verse 5 does not say this. For which is easier to say? That's not what the text says. Notice there's a comma. For which, here's, here's Christ. He's going to lay it out for them. For which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven? Or to say rise and walk? Now already you should be chewing that. Hold on if I was sitting there and Jesus said, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk. But, verse 6, Jesus says, But that you may know that the Son of Man, this is Jesus' favorite self-designation. I'm not going to re-preach from a few weeks ago where he says the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is a combination of him being the Messiah that is predicted and prophesied in the book of Daniel. So this phrase, Son of God, this title points to the Messiah, but it also points to his humanity. So it's a combination of his deity and his humanity, his suffering servant, and this divine side of him. So verse 6 says, but Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he breaks his sentence. Matthew comes in and says, he then says to the paralytic, did you catch? He says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He breaks off talking to them and he talks to the paralytic. Rise, pick up your bed. Hey, so that you'll know that I can do what I just said. Rise, pick up your bed and go home. So what happened next? Uh, He rose and went home. (laughs) Got up and went home. Picked up his bed and went home. 
I'm not really going to preach on verse 8 today, so get it the first time through. When the crowd saw it, wow, they were, there was mixed reaction, but all of them would have had some of each of these reactions. They were afraid. Yes, awe-inspired, awe-struck, because I, I think this word is a strong word here. They're afraid. Because what they just saw and what they just heard brought together, they realize who they're in the presence of, like new revelation. He's getting bigger and bigger every time we hear him talk and do something. It's, we're getting a clear picture of what kind of person. And they're afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Do not interpret that last word. I, I'm, I'm going to preach it right now. Giving that authority to men does not mean various mankind. It doesn't mean the church. It doesn't mean some priest. It means a man, a representative of mankind has the authority to do what Jesus did back in verse 2. And they're amazed that God has given that to a man, men. Now, if you would, four thoughts this morning. Number one, let's talk for a moment about faith-filled friends. Faith-filled Friends, faith-filled friends. A few things that we know, and I'm going to go now again recapping what Matthew, Mark, and Luke all together. So catch, I'm going to mainly give two things. Ladies and gentlemen, here's what we know. This paralytic has four, I'm going to presume, friends who are so filled with faith that when they hear that Jesus is back in town and he's in a certain house, they are going to do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. And I'm going to propose that this phrase in here, that when Jesus saw their faith, it doesn't just mean the faith of the four friends. It means this man has faith. These guys have so much faith that when they can't get to Jesus, oh, well, it's just not our day. Maybe we'll catch him when he leaves later. Or let's try back tomorrow. Or if he goes out of town, we'll catch him next time. No, they will not be stopped. These guys are so filled with faith that they go tear the roof off of the place to get their friend to Jesus. Second thing that we know... And again, I'm, I'm quite confident in this, is that here's what we know. When Jesus, quote, saw their faith, he equates their actions. So what is happening? I don't think this is what's happening. I don't think Jesus uses his godness to see in their hearts and he sees faith in their hearts like he can read the thoughts of the scribes and the Pharisees that are against him. All this means is, he sees what they're doing to get their friend to him, and he comes to the conclusion they have faith. There is evidence of their faith. He can tell by their actions these guys have faith. And absolutely they had faith. I, li listen to me. These four men are not going to go to all of that trouble if they don't really believe in Christ. But even more so, this man... Is not going to subject himself. Put yourself in his shoes. He's a paralytic. He can't walk. He's not going to want all eyes on him, but he's not going to put himself in a potentially public, humiliating circumstance if he doesn't really believe. And I believe their faith is in two things for, about Jesus. They believe that Jesus is compassionate. They have faith in the compassion of Christ. We've got to get our friend. Get me to Christ. He will be compassionate. The second thing is they believe in his ability. He cannot just be compassionate. He will do something about my circumstance. Look again, verse 2. And when Jesus saw their faith. Can I talk about that for a moment? So here's what I want to do. Let's talk about faith. 
They had it. It was very obvious. And based off of that, I'm going to make a conclusion that is not just here, but is broader in what I have found to be true in life. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. Faith itself is invisible. So normally, many of you are here on a Sunday morning, and as I look around Sunday morning, I, at the end of the service, I, a few times I have asked, hey, if you know that you're Christian and you have trusted the Lord, you have put your faith in Jesus, would you raise your hand? Almost everyone raises their hand each time we've done that. Here's the problem. I can't see faith. You can't see. Faith is invisible. But when it is genuine and real, faith always becomes perceivable. Listen carefully. Faith is invisible, but when it's real, it becomes perceivable. Listen, faith can be faked. It can be faked. Here's a person with faith. Here's a person that is faking faith. Both raise their hands in the service. Oh, yes, I'm on my way to heaven. We're going to find out when judgment day comes. Some were lying and some were not. Some really had faith. Some were faking it. Here's the conclusion. Faith can be faked, but it cannot be hid. Faith cannot be hid. It will not be hid. It is going to come out one way or another. Here's what I find. The world is full of religious people, like billions of religious people. Billions who would call themselves Christians, some two billion plus that they tell us. I'm telling you, this is the truth. Many people go through religious motions. But they're only going through the motions. Some will go through the motions for a little while because they think religion has helped someone they know. So I'm going to try it. But they're faking. Others, guys, listen, they'll do it their whole life. Kind of half-hearted. But they will do their whole life, go through religious motions and spiritual disciplines. Why? Because it's the expected thing, particularly here in the the South. It's the expected thing, and they're faking. But guys, I'm going to tell you, when faith is real and genuine. And and here's my thought for you. When you take real faith and you couple it with desperation, when you put real belief and desperation, it will drive people to do very unusual things. You say, like what unusual thing? Like rip the roof off of a place. When you really believe That man will have compassion. That man has power. And if we could just get our friend him, they started ripping the roof off of that place. Why? They had genuine faith and they had a desperate, we need his compassion. We need his power. We need his healing. And they worked till they got there. Their work was not their faith. Their work was an evidence of their faith. I want to make one more application for us today. When faith is genuine, and especially when it's coupled with desperation, it will become perceivable. It will become evident. And it'll make people do some unusual things. You say again, like what? Guys, I'm going to give you five things. And this is a little short list that we could have had a dozen. Seriously. I'm going to offer you five things that a person filled with faith will do that are very unusual things. Now, here's the problem. When I start saying these, your mind is going to say, Jeff, those are not unusual. Lots and lots of people do all those things. Guys, I'm going to challenge you that most of the people who are watching this right now do not do all of these five things. You're going to say, well, sure they do. I promise you, most of the people watching now will not go five for five. Here's here's, here's five, just a sample. 
When faith is real and genuine, it will become perceivable because it will cause us to do unusual things like cry out to God from your soul. It may be from the lips, and often it is from the lips. But I mean, when you have real faith coupled with desperation, and I mean, you're feeling it, you will cry out to God from your soul and beg Him to save you from your sins, to save you from hell, to let you have access and let the death of Christ on the cross apply to you. You will beg God from your soul. You say, many do that. I don't know that they do. There's some folks right now that are assuming they're Christians. They cannot look at a time in their life where they've actually cried out desperately to God. Why not? They don't have faith. They've not felt desperate. They don't really believe. Let's go further. When you have real faith coupled with desperation, it will make you mark out time in your life for prayer. It'll do it. Real faith with desperation. You will mark out time for prayer. You will mark out time to study the Word of God. I'll go further. You will give your life. You will give your time and your energy to serve God. I'll go even further. You will give your money and your resources to God if you really, truly believe. Now, here's my question. Why would anybody do those things? Why are you doing that? You've got to know that some people who do that are made aware of those activities, are made aware to other people, and other folks will be like, they're just weird. That is so unusual. Why did you call out to God like that? It was very embarrassing what you did. You look pitiful. You humiliated yourself. You went in front of everybody all emotional. Why did you do that? Because they believe and they're desperate. Here's how some people think. Why do you get up in the morning? I mean, let's just be real, guys. Those that have a prayer time, they're giving up sleep either in the morning or they're giving up sleep later at night. I mean, let's boil it down. That's what they're doing. Why are you giving up sleep? Here's one. Why do you keep studying that same book? There's lots of books in the world. You've read that one 10 times, 20 times, 30, 40, 50 how many times? You, come on, move on. Get another book. Why do you keep doing that? Faith, desperation. Why do you keep giving all your time down there? Why do, you, why do you get their money? That's your money. You should keep it. Can I tell you why? People who have faith with desperation will mark out time to pray because in their heart of hearts, they are convinced there really is a God and I need to worship Him. There really is a God, and I have sinned against Him, and I have daily sinned, and my daily sin blocks my fellowship, and it needs confessed. There really is a God, and He's really good, and every good thing that I have, He has given to me, and I just, I just need to tell Him, thank you. There really is a God, and He lets me tell Him my needs, and He cares about my needs, and He actually does something about my needs. You want to know why? We pour ourselves into this one book over and over because faith says this book is the key to life. This book is the key. That's why they study it over and give their life pouring over and over each word and each phrase and each book and like all their life never getting to the end. Why do you give your time? Why do you give your money? 
When a person has faith, they are convinced anything I give to the Lord cheerfully is not lost. It furthers His kingdom. It helps people. And oh, by the way, He rewards that in this life and through eternity. Faith will make you do some unusual things. I wonder how many folks, as I just taught that, said, by God's grace, faith comes out in my life in that way, in that one, in that one, in that one, in all five. Or how many say, well, I've, I've prayed. I asked the Lord to save me. And those other four or five things I don't really do. Number two, would you notice this with me this morning? And this is kind of, I think, maybe the heart of the message today. Jesus makes a shocking declaration. And I thought about this this week, and I think I've had this same point several times. I maybe have worded it slightly different, but guys, this is just the way it is. Jesus keeps on saying shocking things, and so it has to be one of the, the points. And it's really like maybe the main point this morning. It's out of verse number 2. Jesus makes a shocking declaration. Look at it again. And behold, some people brought to him, four men we know. Brought to him means through the roofs. Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, I believe the activity that was the evidence of their faith, he equated it with faith. He says to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So guys, here's the problem. What Jesus says in verse 2 is now, 2020, 2020, it is so accepted. It's just understood that that is a core message of Christianity. We've heard it so much, we've grown up in it. Oh, Jesus forgives sins. We are so used to hearing that, I'm telling you, we do not have hardly any of the shock that Jesus' original audience would have had. I cannot, I don't have the vocabulary. I mean, we would have to go back and live in that time to know what these words would have done to this audience. I read that this week. And it, I've, I've read this passage before. I've never preached it. I read this and it just started whipping me all around. And I'm, it got my curiosity. I, I'm not saying I poured over every chapter. I glanced back over the previous chapters that Matthew has given us. And I'm using Matthew's version and I started thinking, what are like the most astounding things Jesus has said up to this point? And so my mind went back to chapter 5. I'm going I'm to give you two things that Jesus has especially said up to this point in his ministry that would be shocking, astounding. Number one is in chapter 5. Do you remember when Jesus said this? He tells a whole audience, Sermon on the Mount, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. That would have blown them away. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were the most outwardly religious and seemingly perfect people in all the world. And Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed their righteousness to go into the kingdom. And again, I'm not going to re-preach that, but basically what he's laying a foundation that you think they're extremely righteous. You better have much more exceed, greatly exceed more than that. It doesn't mean like just a little bit, like a lot more. He's laying a foundation that you don't have righteousness. You need an outside alien righteousness given to you, which is what Christ gives us. But also, he lays a foundation that the scribes and the Pharisees are not nearly as righteous as you think because they focus on the externals. And Jesus, you'll remember, Jesus goes into this whole teaching. They'll tell you don't commit murder. I say don't even have hatred in your heart. They say don't commit the act of adultery. I tell you don't even look with lust. They tell you eye for an eye and retaliate for those who backhand insult you. I say turn the other cheek and don't get them back. Like 
Jesus is calling for a lot more righteousness than the external version that the Pharisees offer. The second, I, my Bible is open here. I have chapter 8 and the early part of verse 9 open in my Bible. Do you have yours open? If you would, look back at chapter 8. Look at verse 11. It won't be on the screen, so you'll need to look. I think chapter 8, verse 11 is another one of the most jaw-dropping moments of Jesus' teaching thus far. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What that means is that he's telling them many Gentiles are going to get in on the kingdom. That would blow them away. Like, what in the world did you just say? Verse number 12, even more so. While the, so many Gentiles are going to get in on this thing. Verse 12, while the quote, I'm putting that, it doesn't mean the sons, the true sons of the kingdom, but the assumed sons of the kingdom, talking about Jews, verse 12. So it's saying many from the east and west, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus has just said many Jews or Gentiles are going to get in on the kingdom and many Jews are not going to get in on the kingdom and they're going to go to eternal punishment. And people would listen to that and go, that's not what we've thought all of our life. That can't be true. But it was. Your righteousness must exceed theirs. Gentiles are going to get in on it. Many Jews are not going to get in on it. And then we have chapter 9. And I'm going to say... What he says in verse 2 is not less than those. It, this may be the most shocking thing he said. Yeah, he tells a man that he has just forgiven him of his sins. Like, what are you doing? You say, well, Jeff, Jesus forgot. You know that now, and I know that now. They don't know that. This is brand new. So here's where my confession is going to come in. All right? I might regret. I am literally, no one I read this week, and that's not to toot my horn there, I'm admitting I'm, I might be wrong on where I'm going to head with this. I, a month from now, I may go, oh, that was so stupid. Uh, a year from now, five years from now, like, what were you thinking? I, so I want to be transparent for a little bit. Verse 2 really caused me some problems. I'll bet you I have a few names in mind of some folks right now who have already picked up on the problem. And many are probably thinking, I don't, it, it took me a little bit to really define the problem and I'm not confident that I have the answer. It made me ask some questions. And it took me in some places and tested my theology. And I'm saying all that to say that standing here this morning, I don't have 100% solid answers I'm going to offer. Some ideas. Look at verse 2 one more time. Behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. They're bringing him. Why in the world are they coming? You say, well, I'll assume... They're like everyone else. Back in chapter 8 and previous chapters, they're bringing all the sick. And everybody knows if you can get the sick to Jesus, he can heal them. Verse number 2, when Jesus saw their faith, he saw their faith. They have faith. He says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. I, 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 that caused problems. He said, Jeff, spell it out. Here we go. Though this man and his friends... Have definite faith in Jesus. I want to emphasize that. I know they have faith in Jesus. That's the whole first point that I just made. They have it. Here's the problem. Nothing in Matthew. So I go to Mark and Luke because the most immediate commentary on the Bible is, is the Bible itself. And so maybe Mark and Luke are going to give me some clues, going to help me out answer this problem. They have faith in Jesus, that is undeniable, but here's my problem. Nothing in the three Gospels insinuates that their faith is anything more than faith that Jesus will heal their friend physically. 
There's nothing in the text that says they have faith that Jesus will forgive their sins or his sins. It's just not in there. Now, some people I've read just make the assumption that that's what Jesus saw was faith to forgive sins. I don't see that in the text. So here's my question. If they have faith for physical healing, why does Jesus start with pronouncing forgiveness of sins? Let me reword that. If this man has faith for physical healing, why is Jesus forgiving his sins? Is that good enough? Does that equate? What does that do to our theology? You say, Jeff, I'm still not getting exactly what you're saying. You have a note, and I'm going to give you one potential option, and this and this may be the right one. It's not mine. This may be the right one. Okay, the first one that you have in your notes. It begins this way. Though hard to prove from the text, and guys, I'm going to summarize. I have two names here. I'm probably not going to give them to you of people that I read this week. Uh, let me just say for those that listen regularly, I don't quote anyone more than these two people, right? They both have a version of the following. All right. Are you tracking with me? Raise your hand if you're at home and you're tracking. Good. Hey, tell that one that didn't raise their hand. All right. Anyway, are you still with me? Pay attention. All right. The view is that back at that time period in the Middle East, there was an assumption. Most people had it. It was in the Old Testament. It's in the New that if you have some unusual condition, some unusual pain, struggle, hardship come your way, it's because you have specific sin in your life. Have you ever heard it? Job's friends had it. Jesus' disciples had it. They see a blind man. They ask Jesus, uh, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What? Somebody listening to me right now, you have such a theology that you make an assumption that if something bad happens to me or especially if something unusually bad happens to someone else, well, they must have done something to make God really mad. They're being judged and punished. Well, can I say this? All pain and suffering and sorrow and death happens as a result of sin in general. And there are times, and Scripture does allude to this, and I believe God will have specific punishment for specific sins, but that's not the predominant view of Scripture. So, Jeff, why are you going into this? Some, this will be your note, some, though I contend hard to prove from the text, have proposed that what is happening here is this man is being lowered and he's brought to Jesus and he's burdened about some specific sin that he knows has caused his paralysis. And based off of that knowledge and that burden, Jesus inwardly can see what he's battling with and struggling with. And this man just assumes, I can't have my outward condition healed until I get my sins forgiven. And so Jesus... By this proposal, he just knows that's what's going on in his heart. And so Jesus just jumps to forgiving of, of his sin. Because that's what he's struggling with on the inside. So Jeff, what do you say to that? Maybe. Hey guys, listen, that might very well be what was happening. The only problem is, I can't preach that. Say, so why not? Listen. The only person who speaks... In these eight verses, or in Mark's 11 or 12 verses, or in Luke's 10 verses, the only one is Jesus. We know what some folks are thinking, scribes and Pharisees. The man never talks. His friend never talks. All we have is Jesus' words to this man. And so I can't preach what we want to make put into the text so it will keep our theology nice and smooth. You say, Jeff, so what do you think? 
nothing in the text says that this man has faith for anything more than physical healing. Nothing in the text leads us to say that he, he is coming to Christ with faith for forgiveness of sins. Because I want to propose, if that's what he's dealing with, then why doesn't he go to Jerusalem? If he's feeling that, why does he go to Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice and ask God the Father to forgive him of his sins? Why is it? Jesus has never said this to anyone else yet. Jesus just randomly, many have been brought to him and he's healed many people. Many have come themselves, many have been brought by loved ones. Go back to chapter 8, you'll see it. And yet here's this man and Jesus pronounces him forgiven of his sins. And so Jeff, why do you think that's happening? Well, I'm going to give you my, my answer. I think Jesus just says this on his own. He just, here he comes down. He sees all that they're doing and it's just on his own, Jesus, who's apt to do this, just pronounces him to be forgiven of his sins. And you may be thinking, no, no, that, that, that can't be right. Why do you think that? Here's my reason. Because Jesus can. Are you going to tell Jesus what he can and can't? Jesus, you, you can't do that. There has to be something else going on inside. And so we, we fabricate some other version that's not in the text. You have to leave the text to drum up these other reasons. So what is actually happening? Before we leave that, and then we're left to think of all the ramifications, well, if that's true, let me do a hypothetical, all right? I don't want to camp here forever, but let me do a hypothetical. Please, trap, and, and I pray that the Lord would make this make sense. Suppose there's an unsaved man, unsaved today, right? He has never put his faith and trust in Jesus, but watch, listen, he has some faith in God, Right? He's not put his faith and trust in Jesus because he doesn't have faith and trust in Jesus as Savior. But he gets in a real bind. Kind of like this man had paralysis and wanted relief. This person gets in a bind and they're not a Christian, but they pray for God to help their surgery go well or their child's surgery. This, this is really crunch time. Lord, I know I don't talk to you a lot, but they really pray and ask God. Not a Christian, but they if there's a God and, and they pray, or I need a job, or I need a house, or we need some food, and they pray. Now, here's the kicker. It happens. Surgery goes well. They get some food. They get a job. They get some shelter. My question this morning is, if on the basis of their prayer to God, they have some version, some level of faith in God, and they prayed for God's help, and it happened... Is there a chance that on the basis of the evidence of that and off of what we see in this text, if, what if, they leave this world and lo and behold, there really is something to this Christianity. And there really is a heaven and there really is a hell. Is there an outside chance that maybe, just maybe, God and the Lord Jesus will forgive them of their sins? Though they never asked for it. Is there a chance? Hey, kind of like chapter 9. Because guys, frankly, what I see, and I might be wrong, I'm, I'm admitting that. What it looks like to me is a man that comes to get healed physically, and he gets a whole lot more than he bargained for without ever asking for it. And again, I realize that makes us struggle. So Jeff, what do you think is happening? Write this down. It is possible, in fact, I'm going to propose that it seems to me this is a unique situation. This is a, I, I wasn't expecting this this week. 
I didn't realize, man, this is like a real key passage. This is like, this is astounding. This is a shocking declaration. I believe that this is possibly a very unique situation in which Jesus shows his prerogative. Here it comes. I'm going to take heat for this. This is Jesus showing his prerogative to forgive whoever he wants to forgive. Here's this man. Your sins are forgiven. Didn't even ask for it, but he has faith. I need to reiterate that. This man has faith in Jesus, and Jesus forgives him of his sin. And so here's my conclusion. This man, in Matthew chapter 9, can live the rest of his days in full assurance. His sins are forgiven. They are gone. I mean, what, what an awesome life. He's going to get to live. You say, how can he know that his sins really are gone? Listen carefully. Because Jesus said they were. That's what he has. He has a God promise. This man can live his days knowing my sins are removed. They're gone. I have a God promise. Why? Because Jesus is God. So to finish my hypothetical thought... Jeff, do you think that anyone, maybe someone today, can go around and kind of have assurance that their sins are forgiven? Oh, I absolutely believe there is one type of person who can literally have genuine, legitimate, real faith, real confidence. Let's call it real assurance that God has forgiven, that their sins really are gone. Here's the only person that can have that real assurance their sins are removed. Those who have a God promise. If you have a God promise, then you too can live with great assurance. So here's my question. Hey, are you with me? Do you have a God promise? Has God ever told you that your sins? You're like, well, Jesus actually told this man verbally, and everybody else heard this man, heard Jesus tell this man, I've never had anything like that. Hang on. God has told me that my sins are forgiven. And it's not because I'm anything special. Do you have a God promise? And some of you right now are saying, yes, I actually, I have, I have great assurance that my sins are forgiven. When did that happen? When did God tell you that your sins are forgiven? How did he do it? Where were you? Where is your God promise? Like literally, I want everyone, everyone right now, those sitting in here right now, those of you watching this at any point, whether live or in the future, right now nail down, what is your God promise? You say, well, Jeff, what is yours? Mine's John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and he that comes to me I will not cast out. I've went to the Lord for salvation, and he will not cast me out. My God promises John chapter 3, verse number 16. God's word, God's word says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, God says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I believe in Jesus. I have a God promise. Acts chapter 16, verse number 31. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I have believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Did it in 1979. Can't stop believing in Him. I have a God promise. Here's another one. Romans chapter 10. I want to read it because it's, I've memorized it different than it is in the ESV. Listen to what Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Hey, everybody, if you're watching this, listen very carefully. Listen to what Jeff Bartlett's getting ready to do. Jesus is the Lord. He's the Lord. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, the inner core being, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. I'm going to skip down to verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I've done all of that. I've done all of that. He said, Jeff, what did you do to be saved? I believed what the Bible says and I have received it as salvation based on the promises of God Focused on Jesus. His death on the cross counts for me. I have a God promise. Do you have one? Number three. Third thought this morning comes out of verses three and four, and it's this. Jesus displays God's omniscience. So we have faith-filled friends. We have this wild declaration that is very shocking that Jesus makes, kind of on his own. He just jumps ahead and forgives a man of his sins that's coming, apparently, apparently, for healing. And now in verse three, up. He's going to get in some hot water, but Jesus displays God's omniscience. Look at verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? So let me make some very simple statements that most of us know, but we need to rehearse. Everybody ready? Here we go. God knows everything. God knows everything. Everything. Listen, literally, if it can be known, even if it took 10 million years to calculate it, if it can be known, God already knows it. He always knows it. Ladies and gentlemen, those in here this morning, I'll put myself in this group. There's not a one of us, not a one of us that would want anyone else to know our every embarrassing inner thought, our every We wouldn't want anyone to know. And yet the Bible says that our every inner thought and even our every embarrassing and convicting inner thought is completely wide open, bare, and naked before God. If you want to follow me, go back to 1 Chronicles 28. 1 Chronicles 28, verse number 9. David is an older man and he's handing the kingdom over to his son Solomon. And he charges him. And he's going to say, you're going to build the temple and you're going to be the new king and David will die in the next chapter. Notice verse 9. And you, Solomon, my son, here's his charge, know the God of your father. Solomon, know the God of your... He's his father. He said, know my God. I want you, you need to spend your life knowing him. And serve him. But notice the qualifier. Solomon, know him and serve him with your whole heart, with a whole heart, and with a willing mind. Don't go kicking and screaming, Solomon. Do it with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Why? Why is that important? For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And then David tells Solomon, his son, if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Notice, serve him, know him with a whole heart And with a willing mind because the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. We don't have time to go to Psalm 139. Hebrews chapter 4. Listen to verse number 12 and 13. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God, the decrees, the pronouncements, the promises. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper. Here's the key thought. Sharper than any two-edged sword. How sharp? Piercing to the, div- to the division of soul and of spirit, 
I, I realize I'm in a minority. I believe that mankind is body, soul, and spirit. I think we have three aspects of our one person. Like God is Father, Son, and Spirit. I believe we are in the image of God. And I know there are many that are dichotomous. And I don't know what to do with this passage because this passage says the Word of God is so sharp that it makes a division even between soul and spirit. I wouldn't die for what I think is the division between soul and spirit, but the Word of God says there is a difference. Verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. How, how sharp is it? How much of a division? And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's making the bit. There's thoughts, and then there's the real intention. Verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What does that mean? What that means, ladies and gentlemen, and we're going to get back to Matthew 9, we'll not depart necessarily again. God knows your thoughts. He knows the thoughts you had yesterday. Hey, God knows what you were thinking about yesterday. God knows what you're thinking about right now. He knows what you are thinking about this time tomorrow, exact, whether you are still on earth or if you're already in eternity, which could happen. God knows what you will be thinking at exactly this moment tomorrow or 10,000 years from now. He knows your every thought. Listen, God knows your ideas. God knows your ideas. You know the, the half-baked ones, right? We got some half-baked ideas. We got some good, some of you got some pretty good ideas. God knows your good ideas. He knows your half-baked ideas. He knows your really stupid ideas too. You say, well, I'm glad I don't have any stupid ideas. Right, none of us have any stupid ideas or they wouldn't be our ideas. We think they're all really great ideas. God knows them all. God knows your core beliefs. Not what you tell everybody you believe. God knows your core beliefs. God knows your true motive. You understand? God knows, I mean, your truest motive. Other people may get it wrong and accuse you and twist it. Actually, guys, we can even fool ourselves into thinking we're doing something for a great motive. God knows the deep, unconscious, underlying motive. God knows your, your deepest aspiration. I mean, what you really, really want. God knows your secret fantasy. I mean, the dreamy type stuff. I mean, the silly stuff, the fun stuff, the perverted stuff. It's all open. So, Jeff, that's great. Nice little theological lesson. What's the point as it bears with Matthew 9? God knows all things. Listen, Jesus is God. Jesus knows all things. And what I don't want you to do, and I don't have time to explain this or track it down to Philippians and other places. I don't want you to think that Jesus, while he's on earth, is walking around with tens of millions of people's thoughts going through his mind why would he not be doing that because what the bible teaches us that when jesus for that per period of time he came to earth he temporarily laid aside he laid aside his glory he didn't look like god he's god he laid aside his majesty and his beauty and his glory and his glory being the sum total of all of his attributes and so we couldn't really see all of his attributes in fact Catch this, the theologians would say it this way. He laid aside the independent use of those attributes, many of them. He is the God-man. He is all God, all man. He cannot be anything other than that. But he laid aside the independent use. What does that mean, Jeff? That means that when it fits the purposes of God, he was able to draw on those aspects. And so in this moment, I believe he can see the faith of these five men, but he can also understand the thoughts without it being said he knows people's thoughts 
Why is that important? Look at verse 3. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Son, my son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Apparently, as soon as that, and by the way, I imagine there was some gasp. There was probably some very literally, literally open jaws, like jaw-dropping in the crowd. And some not even ready to accuse him, but especially the... And there was probably some widened eyes and maybe even some turning to look. I think what happened is when these people heard this, their first thought would have been... Did he just, and when they look at each other, it confirms, like, he did... And then their next thought was, he can't do that. That is blasphemy. That is blasphemy. And we think, blasphemy, what is that? Isn't that like slandering God? Well, he doesn't even, here's the problem. Jesus doesn't even mention God. So how is this blasphemy? Well, it's not his directly saying the name of God. It's his indirect, and by the way, this, Jesus was doing this. He is indirectly implying the name of God. Why? Because if you read Mark and Luke, what they let us know is what further these men were thinking. Catch it. That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. He can't forgive sins. He's blaspheming. And that's like one of the worst sins in the Jewish culture. You know why this is significant, right? Do y'all remember why Jesus is going to be crucified? This is it. This is the start. You are a blasphemer. You cannot do that. You've taken on for you what belongs to God only. You can't forgive sins. Can I say this in their defense? If anybody, else had, if anybody else had said what Jesus said, oh, they're absolutely right. It'd be blasphemy. And their inner thought would be a wonderful defense of God, an appropriate zeal for God. It'd be a justified defense of God. But that's the problem. It wasn't just anyone else. It was Jesus. Jesus is the one who says this. They know. Listen. No mere man can tell another person that their sins against God have been forgiven. No man can do that. I don't know fully what the Roman Catholic priests do. I know that people go in a confessional booth and they start confessing their sins. And I think, I don't know if all of them, but I'm confident because I've heard some this past week. They will say, I forgive you. So they come and people confess. Oh, little side note, I saw this Friday on the news. Apparently, you cannot confess your sins to the Catholic priest by Skype. It has to be in person, okay? So you need to know that. That's why they have these car lines and the priest sits in the parking lot and people drive up one by one during COVID just so you need to go confess your sins to a man. I'm here to tell you, no man can tell you that your sins are forgiven. There is only one man, and he's the God-man, and that's the problem. They, in their thoughts are thinking and questioning Jesus does not have the right to forgive sins. And Jesus says, your thoughts about me are evil thoughts. Those, if, listen carefully. If anyone watching this right now, if you inwardly question Jesus' ability to forgive sins, you are thinking evil thoughts. So the real problem in verse 3 and 4 is that the enemies of Jesus had failed to process the evidence because the evidence was enormous. You understand? The birth of Christ, virgin born, where he was born, fulfilled prophecies. There's the testimony of these shepherds out in the field. There are the testimony of these magi. There are these babies that were killed in, around 
Bethlehem. There is Jesus and his family going down into Egypt and coming up out of Egypt. There is him living in Nazareth. There's just one after another. And then there's his life. And there's his teaching. All this should have been evidence and clues to the enemies of Christ. They know this, please. Understand, they know this. There's a reason these scribes and Pharisees have come from Jerusalem and Judea. These are not just people who happened to stand there that morning and got caught up and like, well, that sounds a little different. They are literally coming and tracking Jesus. They, they have the book on him. They know what is being said. They have his life. They have his miracles. Everything he ever says he's going to do, he always does it. The evidence is enormous. They had the testimony of John the Baptist, which is undeniable. John the Baptist says, I have to decrease because he keeps wanting to shine the light on Jesus. They know that there's testimony that people heard. You can't fake this in that time period. They heard the voice of God the Father's out of the sky say at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. All of this evidence was a mountain that should have told them we're dealing with the Messiah and everything he says is true. And they should have got behind him, but no, they suppressed the truth, and they questioned. They suppressed the evidence. They suppressed him. They suppressed the truth he was preaching. And Jesus knew it. And then lastly this morning, number four, and it comes out of verses five through eight. Again, you know that I'm not preaching in depth all of this. Number four this morning, Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive sins. So we have faith-filled friends. Jesus makes this shocking declaration Jesus knows people's thoughts in their inner thoughts and what they're thinking and exposes their inner thoughts. And then, if that wasn't enough, Jesus demonstrates his authority to actually forgive. Look at verse 5. He asks a question of the whole crowd, and particularly the scribes and Pharisees, for which is easier? So I want you to kind of think. Go ahead and form. Hey, don't say it out loud in your living room or wherever you're at in case you're like, well, I think that one's careful. You might be wrong. So just kind of think it. And you can always afterwards say, yep, that's the one I was going, okay, great. And then you can have bragging rights there at the table. All right, verse 5. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Which is easier? So if I could have your attention. If, listen, if we're talking about doing, forgiving someone's sins, their sins against God, I'm going to try to forgive their sins. Or here's a man that's paralyzed. I'm going to try to give him his ability to walk back and his feeling. If it's a matter of doing, forgiving sins or healing a paralytic, I'm going to go ahead and tell you guys. It is equally, equally impossible for me or for you. But forgiving sins or giving a a, a paralytic his ability to walk back, for God, it is equally possible. For you and I, equally impossible. For him, equally possible. I'm not saying it takes the equal amount of the power of God. It would take, we know it takes more of the power of God to forgive sins. But equally possible. Impossible for us, fully possible for him. But here's the problem. The question in verse 5 is not about what is easier to do. The question is what is easier to say. Now let me get technical just for a moment. I don't think it's that technical. Just kind of, I struggle to communicate this, right? So here's what's just happened. Jesus was just accused of being a phony. You're a phony. You can't do that. And it's as though the Lord's response to that is, since I'm being accused of being a phony, then which is easier to say without being exposed? Hang with me. If he's a phony and he's just going and pronouncing things, his point is, if, it's, if all I have to do is say it, 
Well, then, frankly, the easier thing to say and not be exposed as a phony would be to say, your sins are forgiven, than to say, rise and walk. That's the easier to say. You say, why? Because you can't see if someone's sins are forgiven. That is hidden. That is private. That's inward. It's unseen. It's unknowable. You won't know if he's done that or not. But if you are a phony and you don't want to be exposed as a phony, then you don't want to tell a paralytic that he can rise and walk because you're going to be exposed very quickly. It's going to be very discernible when he doesn't get up and walk. And so I think Jesus' point here is the easier thing is to say your sins are forgiven. The harder thing is to say rise and walk. So here's the point. Verse 6. The second most important verse of our text. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. In other words, here's what Jesus does. I've already said the harder thing. I'm sorry. I've already said the easier thing to say and not be exposed as phony. So since you think I'm a phony, let me say the more difficult thing to say and fake. Because you'll know if I'm lying. And then he turns and he says, rise. Take up your bed and go home. And Jesus says it. And you say, so what happens after that? Oh, a great miracle. Do you see verse 7? And he rose and he went home. You understand? A man that is carried in walks out. That's a tremendous miracle. This is a great miracle. But now, having said that, can I tell you this? Having read this multiple times, I want to challenge you to read it too. Get the tone. This is an awesome, great miracle in verse number 7, but it's almost like a subplot, the way it's treated. It's not like the high point of the text. Why? How in the world can such a great miracle in verse 7 be a subplot? Here's why. Because a greater miracle has already happened back in verse 2. In other words, Jesus does the lesser miracle to prove that he had really already done the greater miracle. You're impressed with this external one. The harder thing is the forgiveness of sins. You can't see if I've forgiven sins, so I'm going to do this external thing so that you will know that I've already done it. Now, one of your last notes, I think your next to the last note is the following. The miracles of Jesus are very beneficial and they're very merciful. And they serve a purpose, Right? So Jesus' miracles bring great relief and healing. And they bring, you know, for those that are hurting and those that are sick and those that are oppressed, it brings great relief. So thank you, thank you, thank you for what you did for these folks physically and what you do for us, giving us physical things. But never forget, that is not giving relief to the hurting and to the sick and the oppressed is not the main reason of Jesus' miracles. I'm going to propose to you, not in your notes, There are at least four main reasons Jesus does what he does in verse 6 and 7. You say, why does he do this? Why is it so important that he heals him physically? I think four reasons. Again, you'll not find these on your handout. Just just listen. Why does verse 6 and 7 happen? To prove, number one, listen, Jesus can do everything he says he can do. I said that in verse 2, and I said this in verse 6, and what happens? It happens just as Christ commanded it to happen. The man rises and walks. A second reason Jesus does this, he's proving that he hadn't blasphemed back in verse number 2. Had he blasphemed in verse 2, then God the Father surely would not let this man rise and walk out at Jesus' command. But he does. A third reason I'm going to propose to you why Jesus does this is so that the paralytic, the formerly paralytic man would know that his sins really were forgiven. It's almost like unsaid as he's leaving. 
And oh, by the way, don't forget, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I know, Lord. It's obvious. You do what you say. So Jesus keeps his word. He's not a blasphemer. That man can live with assurance that his sins truly are forgiven. And then finally, it's to show that Jesus really does have authority to forgive. So I want you to get your last note especially. It's simple, but we need to culminate with it because, hey, the omniscience of Jesus, that, that is a point. It's very important. Their faith is extremely important. You, you, you have to have faith. But today's message is not mainly about Jesus having authority to forgive a man of his sins. That's not the main point. The main message this morning is that Jesus has full authority to forgive anyone's sins. I don't have authority to forgive your sins against God. You say, how can Jesus forgive sins against God? Listen carefully. Jesus is God. When you and I sin, we sin against him. And so our sin against him can only be forgiven by God. And Jesus is the one. It is. This is his prerogative. Yes, he had authority to to forgive a man of his sins, but he has full authority to forgive anyone of their sins. And he promises to forgive those sins of those who put their faith and trust in what he did on the cross. And so I preached that this morning, and that's the culminating thought. You want to know the problem? Here's the problem. We get very used to hearing that. You say, Jeff, that's not new. Seriously, tell us, is that that really the main point of today's... Oh, the main point of the text is very clear. Jesus has full authority to forgive any one of their sins. But we get so used to that. So I want you to finish. We're going to finish this morning by looking one last time at verse 2. Do you see it? And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Watch what he says. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the best four words anybody can ever have said from Christ. Your sins are forgiven. But notice what he said. Take heart. Here's this man. I say you have a hard life. Take heart. Put yourself there. The man has not said one word and Jesus says, take heart. Do you know what take heart means? It means like take courage, be encouraged. But really, one commentator, I forget exactly what it was. Here's what it, it taught us. It doesn't just mean hold your fear back. Hold the fear back. No, it means put away your fear. Do not be afraid. Take heart. Why would I not be afraid? Listen, your sins are forgiven. Do you know that I'm talking to some folks right now, many of you? We get so used to hearing this, this doesn't move the needle. But I'm trying to tell you, this is so important. What Christ is trying to tell us Christians is, listen, your sins are forgiven. Okay, why is that so important? Why are you getting all energetic, Jeff? It means that we were living under a penalty, eternal hell. And our penalty is gone. It means that we were separated from God. And now we've been declared to be at peace and right with God. It means that we were living guilty. There's, a lot of, there's some other folks right now. You're living guilty with sin. But if you can get Jesus to say your sins are forgiven, literally it means your guilt is gone. And literally, guys, my last thoughts this morning are really where I left with Easter, that like marathon sermon that was much longer than even this one. And I really apologize for that. I beat myself up for that for a whole week. Mike let you out early last week, praise the Lord. 
Ephesians 1 and 2. You say, Jeff, why is this so important? Take heart. Don't be afraid. Why? Because Ephesians 1 and 2, Christians, hear it fresh. If you're not a Christian, let this motivate you. The Bible in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 teaches us that if you've ever had your sins forgiven by the Lord, you listen, you will spend eternity knowing an infinite God. Serving, chapter 2, verse 10 of Ephesians. Serving an infinite God through eternity. Listen, chapter 1 of Ephesians. Praising the glory and particularly the grace of this infinite, gracious God. And number four, the one that I still really like a lot, is for eternity. If you've ever had your sins forgiven by Jesus Christ, it's once and for all. What that means is you are a recipient through eternity. Out of the riches, the richest abundance excess much more than he will ever need of the measureless grace of God he will be performing acts of kindness pouring it out on you through eternity guys what I'm describing it will take eternity to do these four things you say well no eventually no it's going to take eternity to know this infinite God to serve him and to praise him and to keep on receiving the benefits Jesus knows this in Matthew chapter 9 and knowing this he tells this man oh by the way You should take heart. Don't ever be afraid again. Why? Because your sins are forgiven. I see that you've had a rough life. But it's all right. Trust me. This all ends well for you. Take heart. Would you there at home just close your eyes for a moment, bow your head? Would you do that? Just close your eyes for a moment. I want to take just a moment. Our eyes closed. Are we focusing? I want you to think about what we've heard today. The Bible teaches some very core beliefs. I mean some core doctrine. I gave you one this morning. The Bible teaches that all of us have sinned. We know that. But a core doctrine of Scripture is that God really does forgive sins. But here's the thing. He forgives based on what Jesus does on the cross. Something else that challenged me this week was that Jesus makes this strong declaration before He even has died on the cross. He's already handing out and declaring forgiveness. We're on this side of the cross. and the Bi- So someone out there today, you are carrying a burden of sin. You don't need to carry it any longer. I'm telling you, if you will have faith in the promises. So I began, in my second point, I concluded it by saying, I have a God promise, not because I'm anything special. I'm a sinner just like all of you. But God has promised and declared to me that my sins are forgiven. And I gave several passages. One of those was this. If we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord. Do you believe that? If you've never had your sins forgiven, you say, I don't have a God promise. I mean, wherever you're at right now, sir, ma'am, young person, I'm telling you, if you will hear the words of God, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 tell us, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, implied in that means that you know that He died on a cross, but He rose again from the dead and was victorious over death, and that God accepted His death on the cross. For our sins, we don't have to pay the penalty. We don't have to carry the guilt. We can be put in a right standing with God. We can spend eternity knowing, serving, 
praising and being a recipient of the grace of God. Only thing you have to do is receive the God promise. Maybe yours is John 3.16. But you have to hear that as believable. And you have to confess it to the Lord. God, I am a sinner, but I received Jesus' death for me. Christian, just before I pray and our worship team sings, Christian, does your life evidence faith? Do you do you have a prayer time? If not, it means your faith is weak or you're not desperate. Do you have a time in the Word? Do you give your time for the Lord? Do you give of your resources to the Lord? Christian, one last thought before I pray. Do you... Do you need to be aware that the Lord knows your thoughts and something's just not been right and confess it to Him? He knows. You can't hide it. Acknowledge it to Him. And then live with no fear whatsoever. Father, I thank You for the truth of this passage. And Lord, I pray that we would all take it in and deal with the truth of this text this morning. Thank You most of all, God that Jesus has the authority and has declared that he will forgive us of our sins when we believe in him. Lord, let us believe in Christ. Let us celebrate that. Let us live fearlessly, no matter what. We pray it in Christ's name.